This is the Wicked Problems in Circular Systems podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hostreich. Today I'm sitting down with Jacob Bacharach. He is an author of both fiction and nonfiction. Jacob, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be joining you. Uh, You summed it up pretty well. I guess I call myself a novelist first and foremost, but I also write quite a bit about politics and culture for a variety of publications, both contemporary politics, books, international relations, and domestic issues, particularly those related to economics, tech, housing, anything in between. I divide my time between two of the finest Cities in Appalachia, I spend about half my time in Pittsburgh and half my time in Blacksburg, uh, Virginia. I made my first visit to Pittsburgh about seven years ago. Had a really unique feel, seemed like a neat place to be. It's a a unique American city. It's got a unique topography and a kind of unique regional culture all of its own. Although maybe we'll talk about in this interview, it's also in some ways kind of a, a ground zero for I think a lot of the tensions in American civic life at the moment, a former industrial city that joined a lot of other Midwestern and Great Lakes towns in sort of forming the core of the Rust Belt, but which has maybe more successfully, well, successfully, depending on your point of view, emerged from its economic doldrums and is now kind of a boomtown for education and tech and medicine that has all of the attendant Good fortune that comes with that, but also a lot of the attendant ills that come with being a really rapidly gentrifying place. With that in mind, maybe we can transition to your chapter from the book with a little discussion of what it was about and maybe the central idea you were trying to get at. Well, I guess the high level idea of the chapter, the thing that I wanted to think about as I thought through what the pandemic meant contemporaneously when I was writing it, and then what it might mean in the future is actually to think about how it might affect the lived and built environments that we inhabit, whether that's in a, a big city or, or a small town or a rural place, but, but I think particularly in, in cities and towns. And to think about the ways that the unusual pressures of the pandemic on civic life, on group life, on group activity could obviously negatively impact the life of the American city or of of cities globally, but also the ways in which it could maybe force us to reimagine the public sphere and the public space, and in particular, the sort of outdoor connective tissues that link buildings and houses together in an urban environment. I think I was trying to puzzle through how we could use this terrible and and tragic year full of so many failures of policy and leadership to maybe think our way into a more human environment in which people can live and interact more freely, even after the uh, strictures of the pandemic. I love the way the chapter unfolds. It's like you're exploring the city anew. It kind of echoed some of the stories around the world where cities started to rethink things and open up space for bikes and pedestrians during that time. Really, really gives me some hope during all these challenges to see some of that beneficial rethinking of space. Okay, why don't we move on? The challenges going on in Israel and Palestine. I, I know you've written about these things in the past. Do you have any thoughts you'd like to share about what's going on now? I suppose my first thoughts are simply of sadness and regret for the tribulations of the Palestinian people. What I find frustrating is when people speak about it as being such an intractable problem, which is a a form of both siderism for the issue, because even a lot of people, I think, who have sympathy for the Palestinian cause, nevertheless, I think, tend to imbue the conflict with a degree of 
in a way, a degree of complexity that it doesn't deserve because on a, on a moral level, it's not complex at all. On a moral level, it is an example of an incredibly wealthy, powerful, well-armed and US-backed colonial settler state occupying and dominating a, a weaker people who have been historically dispossessed through the actions of that stronger, more powerful political entity. And I, I think that when viewing it through that lens, some of the obfuscatory or obfuscating details that people like to, to throw out when you talk about the conflict, as I think we're supposed to call it, sort of drop away and it becomes clarifying. It is particularly troubling for me as an American Jew because there is a degree to which contemporary American Jewish life is still in many ways f- focused on the existence of the state of Israel. I think that's all holdover perhaps from the from, from like my parents' generation who viewed the modern state of Israel as a sort of unalloyed good. And I, I think younger folks, I'm, I'm probably on the old end of younger folks, but younger American Jews have taken a have started to take a, a somewhat different tack. And in a way, I find the whole the whole thing exhausting because we've become almost incapable of developing an, a unique Jewish life in America because of the focus on the Israel-Palestine conflict, because of the necessity of constantly coming up with a sort of equivocating, quote-unquote, liberal Zionism to excuse what's going on there rather than doing what I think is more in the historic character of American Judaism, which is to take the side of the both the underdog in the conflict as well as the party that is being morally and politically wronged in the conflict. And in that case, in this case, it's the Palestinians. I just view the entire thing with with just tremendous regret because I recognize that it is both because of the powerful right-wing forces within Israel, but also because of the continued support of the sort of legacy institutions of American Judaism that this occupation and these war crimes and this apartheid state are allowed to continue long beyond when they should have ended. Yeah, I don't know. These probably aren't good parallels, but having visited Vietnam a few times and Hiroshima in Japan, the feeling of shame associated with being in those places as an American, I mean, I wasn't even born at the time of the bomb, but I still felt it. I certainly don't think that's an inappropriate metaphor, although I <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm embarrassed to preface a comment this way, but I said on Twitter the other day, you know, in some ways, I think that the historical analogies that we grasp for as, as Americans in particular, when discussing Israel are inapp. And even those of us on the left, I think often reach for, in fact, I just did it myself. I reach for the analogy of apartheid South Africa when discussing Israel and Palestine. But in many ways, I think that the more apt historical analogy is the United States itself, is our history of, of Indian wars and manifest destiny and the dispossession of the native and indigenous peoples right here on our own continent. And I think that by kind of reaching for the apartheid metaphor, which is instructive in some ways, but nevertheless, I think it exculpates us a little bit from looking at the actual Israeli project, which is really not to craft a state like South Africa, where a small racial minority ruled a large racial minority and utilized their their sort of labor for economic benefit, but rather a frankly, almost a genocidal project to, in effect, cleanse Israel from the from the river to the sea, as they say, of any Palestinian uh, presence or culture and, and ultimately population. And if you look at the internal Israeli discussion, not the sanitized version that makes it into the into the English language press, you will see this discussed very openly by politicians, major leaders of political parties, and, and by the regular the populace as well. Effectively, to say, well. 
ultimately, we just hope to get rid of them all. And if we're lucky, the way that that will happen is Egypt will take them. <laughs> a mass deportation of people who have lived in a place for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's a terrible thing to contemplate. But I think that Americans, again, even many well-meaning liberal Americans, still hold out hope that the state of Israel as currently constituted can sort of be reformed in a liberal direction. And that reform will then lead to some sort of, you know, peaceful two-state coexistence. Inside of Israel, no one is talking about a two-state coexistence. It is simply a dead letter. It was never going to happen. And now it's even more never going to happen. And logistically speaking, the map that's there, there's no two states. It's just small pieces of land that are all separated, right? Yeah, there's really no contiguous Palestinian territory. I mean, in some ways, Gaza may be one of the largest contiguous Palestinian territories because it hasn't been carved up in the way that so much of the West Bank has by settlement activity, security checkpoints, Israeli-only roads, and, and, and so forth. So the only possible solution in my mind is, as they say, a one-state solution. And whether that's a some type of binational state or a truly a, a single unified democratic Jewish and Palestinian state. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it is the only possible outcome other than the unthinkable, which is a successful ethnic cleansing of the entire territory of what is now Israel and the occupied territories. I know that's not a very, that's a sort of dispiriting <laughs> vision. Although I, I would say I believe that it is it is possible <laughs> to have a multi-ethnic state. <laughs> the idea that that is such an unthinkable outcome is in itself tells you something about the Israeli Zionist project. Because why shouldn't that territory be a multi-ethnic, multi-religious state in which all of its inhabitants have equal rights and equal political representation? Yeah, I have to believe that the majority of the Israeli people want peace with the Palestinian people. I certainly hope that's the case. Let's try to end on a positive. Is there anything going on in current events that you'd like to bring up that we could end on a high note with? <laughs> oh, that's, oh, man, that's the hardest question. <laughs> that's the hardest question of them all. Uh, I, uh, I have occasionally said over the last couple of years, and it feels like like it's maybe even more the case now after the pandemic, that for all of the terrifying prospects in the world and all of the depressing and dispiriting political developments from the rise of the authoritarian right to the, uh, the sort of exhaustion and fecklessness of the traditional liberal left in the US in particular, and maybe in Britain as well, to... <laughs> to the pandemic itself and the you know sort of related issues of environmental degradation and climate change it does feel finally i just turned 40 years old and it feels maybe like for the first time since the fall of the soviet union but maybe even before like we're living at a at a moment where history is not does not feel entirely paralyzed that's maybe not obvious if you look at what's going on in national legislatures or at the highest level of political power, but it does feel like we're at a we're at a moment in which history is inflecting in some way and in which human civilization in general is undergoing 
some kind of change. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if that change is leading us to a better or an even more terrifying place, but simply the fact that it feels as if the river is flowing around us rather than we're just standing in some fetid pond at least opens the possibility for a, a better and more human and more humane future. It's a slim possibility because a better future is always a slim possibility, but it exists and it feels like perhaps <laughs> after everything that's happened over the last decade, culminating in this unprecedented pandemic, that something's going to shake loose and that's going to be kind of terrifying and we're going to live through a fraught couple of years, but it also presents opportunity for human-minded people to do something. I took a look at some of our ongoing economic challenges in the book I published last year, Pandemic Capitalism. It looked at the economy, not in the pandemic, but as one, in which the system is designed to either continually grow and consume additional resources or die, with problems like the way gig workers and minimum wage workers are treated, as well as things like companies relying on government programs to help people get by rather than paying them living wages. I'm hoping some of these challenges that have been highlighted by the pandemic might foster better outcomes for such workers. I also think we ought to be looking at shortening work weeks and spreading more work around and just generally looking for better balance within our communities. Uh, well, I would agree with that. And I think what will be interesting, I mean, we're seeing in the U.S. right now, the at least in some of the some Republican controlled states, and I think probably soon at a more national level, Biden has already hinted in this direction that we're going to see increased pressure to not, not simply to reduce unemployment benefits, but to a return to the pre-pandemic system in which benefits were contingent upon actively looking for work and people were sort of required to take a job if it were offered to them. I think what will be interesting will be to see over the next quarter how that moves the dial on the overall employment picture, on the overall jobs numbers, and in particular, what goes on, to me, the bellwether is not just the, the sort of gig economy generally, but the service economy writ large. And I think it will be interesting to see whether or not workers will continue to be able to, even in a non-unionized environment, exert pressure on employers, whether those are fast food franchises or local small service industry businesses or big gig employers like the rideshare companies. Because I kind of think that even without the increased unemployment insurance benefits, I kind of think that workers are going to take a, a different tact when it comes to being willing to accept sub $8 an hour minimum wage in the U.S. or some of the other horrible working conditions that people in the service and warehouse and transportation sectors have historically had to face, at least over the last 50, 60 years since the major decline in unionization in the U.S., I wonder about the economy that forces people to take jobs they have absolutely no interest in just to have their basic needs met. How do you square that in a nation that's so obsessed with liberty? Anytime the minimum wage comes up, conservatives and actually some liberals as well kind of default back to this Mayberry notion that minimum wage is not intended to be a living wage because all of those jobs are supposed to be for high school kids. Flipping burgers is not supposed to be a living. It's supposed to be a thing that you do over the summer before you go off to college. And in a way, there is a degree to which in an even slightly better world, that would in fact be true, that we would have a society that would not require an adult woman with children to flip burgers at McDonald's that would provide a more 
dignified and human provision of, of basic resources of food and lodging and would allow people to seek out the type of employment or lack of employment that they most wanted and to continue to live that way and to reserve these sorts of kind of make work summer jobs, so to speak, for for kids, <laughs> for teenagers, if they want them. But I think that we've just constructed this kind of totally deranged economic system in which we have a huge class of people for whom the only way to live is to have, yeah, as you said, a job that nobody wants. Nobody wants to work in an Amazon warehouse. <laughs> Even the people who sort of don't mind it don't really want to be there. <laughs> it's an inhuman way to to make a living. There has to be a better, there has to be a better way for people to work for themselves and their communities and for betterment of our society than moving piles of rocks from one place to another. Right now, our economy is fully focused on quarterly returns. It would be nice if we could get even a sense of balance there. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're not wrong. The focus on sort of sh short-term profitability and short-term returns. I mean, even that in a way has been, I think it was Jack Welch of GE fame who famously said that the notion that business's primary responsibility to their shareholders is the, I think he called it the stupidest fucking idea in the history of the world or something. I think we've seen, particularly in the corporate sector, the for-profit corporate sector, it become even more deranged because honestly, nobody even cares about quarterly returns anymore. Who's buying Tesla stock because of Tesla's quarterly earnings reports? Nobody. It's become even more divorced from sort of short-term profitability, which in and of itself is problematic. And I think that there is a degree to which all of the creative energy of new enterprise, and I'm not entirely opposed to the idea of some element of enterprise capital within an an economic system. I'm, I'm not entirely, I'm not a full communist yet. I do believe that there may be space for enterprise activity in a modern economy, but all the energy of new enterprise is basically focused on just getting acquired by some, some extant semi-monopoly or monopoly. Nobody's creating companies to actually have the company anymore. They're just getting, they're just hoping to get enough to get big enough to be acquired in a, in a multi-billion dollar deal. And then so many of the extant large firms, especially in the sort of tech and gig and with something like Tesla, even I guess you could call it the transportation sector. They're all just these kind of wild speculative vehicles at this point, completely divorced from anything that's actually happening on a balance sheet or a 10K report. I can tell you I'm one of those people who's actually trying to do something for the long term to take waste resources and produce socially valuable goods while working with informal waste collectors to improve their livelihoods and clean up the environment. You can guess how fundraising is going. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't. I mean, I, as I told you when we were chatting before we started recording, I work for a university. And while I still believe that higher education in the U.S., that there is hope for it yet, I'm not quite the doomsayer that some people are. I will certainly say that it is remarkable to see the deranging impact of corporate money on research activities, in, especially in elite universities where the historic dedication to fundamental research is sort of slowly being perverted into a sort of work for hire in which the most brilliant people on the planet are really solving problems for for-profit companies in order to get grant money. It is remarkable how hard it is for people who are truly still engaged in 
you know, fundamental research or true social benefit activities to get money to do the things that they want to do. This is a great place to wrap up. There was a nice article about the researcher who spent years chasing mRNA research, hanging on the margins of the scientific community, barely managing to keep her work going, thanks to a handful of people who kept her funded. She then made this major breakthrough and gave us all these amazing possibilities. A lot of people were commenting about what a great story it was, but then someone stood up and said, hey, that, that's not a great story. That's an indictment of the system. You had someone who was so passionate about this basic research, which might have been high risk, but it offered so much in terms of possibility. And we could have very easily lost the opportunity for these leading vaccines for the pandemic. Yeah, a near miss. And because not only has her mRNA technology provided us in astonishingly short order with multiple vaccines now against COVID, but it possibly stands to revolutionize human medicine. There's an HIV vaccine based on this technology that looks like it's going to work and that is in human trials right now. One of the most intractable pandemic human illnesses that we've had in the last century, against which no one has successfully produced a vaccine to this point, even after three, four decades of trying. And so, yeah, when you think about the fact that this person sort of like this extraordinary intellect just bounced around from institution to institution, begging for cash to do change the way that we approach viral medicine is, as you say, an indictment of the system. Although... To know that such human genius exists is, as I said before, perhaps one small positive note to think about in the era in which we live. I can definitely end on that positive note. With that, I'd like to thank you for sitting down with me and for contributing to the book. I greatly appreciate it, and I wish you well. Thank you. It was, it was great to talk to you. I'm really happy to participate in this project. I hope people read the book and, and all of the contributors and really think about this moment as an opportunity to to make things marginally better, at very least. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was interesting and that it helped you see something anew. As an independent press, we can use all the help we can get reaching new readers and listeners, so please do share this for us. Also, What Do We Do About the Pandemic will be available on July 4th, but if you're up for giving us a brief, honest review, you can pick up a free copy on booksirens.com. Thanks again for listening. Audio Binger.